They're all live streamed at 10.30 so you can watch the video or you can watch the audio or listen to the audio. So there's a couple ways you can get it. So if you've missed anything, but just to bring you up to date very quickly, if you remember, we went through the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember how all of this kind of ties together? And he was, he was building his own case for, for self-righteousness. And then we looked at what the kingdom, who the kingdom belonged to. And Jesus said, such as these, those who had no righteousness to claim, those who had no good works to claim. And then we went into the rich young ruler. You remember him? And he went away sad. And now that brings us to here. And here's the title, Up to Jerusalem. And that is instructive. Why we chose the title, you'll see in a moment. So let's go together now to chapter 18, 31 to 34. If you have your own Bibles, it's, we always encourage that. You know why? If you ever have your own Bible and you're writing notes in it and you've been doing it for a while, you look back over the years, if you read through your Bible each year, and you see notes and you say, man, look what God was doing back then. It's really a neat thing. We have that, and it's, it's, it's really cool. And if you don't have your own Bible, you can use the one in the pew. It's the NIV version, which is the, the, the translation that we use, or it's up on the screens. Okay? 31. Here now. The word of God. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. And they did not know what he was talking about. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant and infallible word. Let's pray together. Father, it is no accident that we're here this morning. Everyone is here by divine design, which means you have something to speak into each heart. Regardless of age or station in life, no one came here interested in listening to the imagination of a man, a sinful man. They came hungry and thirsty for the revelation of God. May your word thunder forth from this pulpit. Make it a word of salvation for the unsaved. Comfort for those in storm winds and rest for the tired, weary, and heavy laden. Father, give us ears to hear that we might hear the truth. Minds to understand and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. Come, now fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus in him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Okay, we'll just touch on the bottom portion of that passage that we just read that the disciples did not understand. We're not going to unpack it in the sermon, but if you look at it right now on the screen, any of this, the the meaning was hidden from them. The reason, just so that we can be clear without getting deep theologically, they were expecting Jesus to set up the throne of David in Jerusalem They were expecting a coronation of a king, not a crucifixion. So it didn't fit into their theological understanding. So that's why they didn't understand it, even though Jesus was telling them time and time again. And God obviously was was going to disclose it to them in the perfect time. And we'll see that when we get to chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus, what Jesus tells them. But that's important that you simply see that. And just know this. Paul writes in the scriptures two things. That the cross is two different things to two categories of people. To the Gentiles, it was foolishness that a crucified Messiah would mean something. But what was it to the Jew? It was a stumbling block. Okay? So they didn't... Remember, if, 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 you're, 
It's hard for you to see something if you're not looking for it, yes? Okay? So they're not looking for it. And even though they're being told over and over and over again, they don't, they don't see it. They don't understand it. They don't want to understand it. It wouldn't make sense to them. That's the last thing they want. They want the kingdom reestablished. They want to know what seats they're going to have in the kingdom. We've left everything for you. So that's the background here. But now we're going to go deep, way below the surface of the scriptures and see what's really going on here, okay? Three headings under up to Jerusalem. Number one, we hear this in his promise. Number two, we read this in his prophecy. And finally, number three, we understand this in his pattern. We have to ask the question, how do you find Jesus in, in the scriptures? It's a loaded question because of the scriptures you hold. How do you find Jesus in the scriptures that they had? What did they have? They had the Hebrew Bible. They had the law and the prophets and the writings. They didn't have the New Testament. So how did you find him? Many people say, well, he's not there. This is some newfound religious faith. No, it's a a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Everything that was in there points to Jesus. So how do we find him? Well, there it is in your point. You find him in promise. You find him in prophecy. You find him in pattern. Now, it's much easier to find him in an explicit prediction, yes? And you remember that. When we get to Easter and Christmas, generally we bring in explicit predictions. Remember for Christmas? Micah 5.2, out of you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, will come what? One who is the ruler of Israel. One from the ancient of days. That's a prophecy that the Messiah, the promised ruler, the promised king, the promise that goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15, he will crush your head, speaking to the serpent, and you'll strike his heel. That's an explicit prediction. It's easy. Is it true? Did he come out of Bethlehem? Yes. That's where he was born. But where else do we find him? We find him in all of this other stuff. Why does that make sense? Even if you don't have a real theological mind, you don't need one. Why does it make sense? We look at the scriptures and we say that it's it's 66 individual books, 40 40 plus authors, over 1,500 years, three languages and three continents, all sorts of... No, no, it's only one mind behind all of it, right? It's the inspired word of... So there's only one author, even though there were 40 plus that actually wrote. But there's one strand of truth that runs through all of it. That's why every week we... Generally every week we say what? This is one word from one God to one world. And that strand of truth is God's unfolding plan of redemption that finds its fulfillment in Christ. Okay? We good? Okay. Here we go. One passage before we get there, because we have to ask a couple questions. And you're going to see this is everywhere in the Scriptures. So let's take a look at what Paul writes in First Corinthians. Remember, no New Testament. No New Testament. So read, read these words in understanding that there's no New Testament that they're pointing to. Ready? Because this is one of the earliest documents in the New Testament that was penned. Looks like about A.D. 50 where Paul writes this. This is certainly the first confession that we have. This is is the very first thing that they believed. And he got this right after his conversion in Jerusalem. So you're almost right on top of the resurrection when he gets this. And here's what he writes in Corinthians 15. For what I received, he received this. He received it. I passed on his first importance. That Christ died for our sins, here's the key line, according to the Scriptures. What Scriptures? The Hebrew Scriptures. Do you see that? That he was buried. That he was raised on the th- oh, third day, according to Scriptures. Third day is in the Scriptures. Where? 
We have to see. We have to look. All of this is in the Scriptures. This is the greatest way for you to really be strengthened in your faith apologetically. What is apologetics? We teach apologetically, right? We have classes on apologetics, and we teach our high schoolers to answer one question. What's the question? How to answer the question, why is Christianity true? Not the fact that you believe in it, or even why you believe in it. Why is it true? Because if it isn't true, don't follow it. What separates you from a Buddhist, a Hindu, a secular humanist, and a Jew? You need to know the answer to the question. Why is Christianity true? So this is probably one of the greatest apologetics coming right out of this passage. What Jesus says. If Jesus is who he says he is, this is one of the greatest apologetics that you can find in Scripture. To what? To, to, n- n- the term defend your faith, I don't like to use that term because it makes it sound like you got your dukes up and you're defending your faith. You're explaining your faith. Somebody who has a sincere interest and says, listen, I, I, I don't, I don't I, what, what do you really believe? And you can explain what you believe and why. It's a defense. You're, you're explaining why I believe Christianity to be true. Okay? So, that, there's Paul. According to the scriptures. They didn't have what you have. They had the Hebrew Bible. You ready? It's important we have that now as we launch out into some deep water. Let our nets down for a catch. Number one, we hear this in his promise. This is not the first time. It's really not the third time, but if you have certain translations, your Bible will say this is his third prediction. He's been predicting it all along. You just have to know how to read it and find it. But this is the third specific passion prediction. He did it twice in chapter 9, remember in Luke, 9.22 and 9.43. Now he does it here again, only here he does it far more explicitly. He lays out some stuff that is very specific, okay? So we're going to see it in promise. We're going to unpack this briefly. Jesus took the 12 aside. We're going to see what 12 means. Who are the 12? Now, taking them aside, it's instructive. These are the ones he's going to leave behind, 11 of them, by the way. And then Matthias will take over for Judas. And he's going to leave those 12 behind to plant the church, to carry on his work. So he's instructing them in the most important apologetic, the most important event, not just in the Christian church, but the most important event in history. What is history? Break the word down. History, right? It's his story. So the Bible is God's unfolding plan of redemption. It's his story from beginning to end. The goal is for you to find out where your story intersects with his. Okay? So we have the 12. We'll look at it in a moment. Then we're going up to Jerusalem. We have to unpack that. And that everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Okay, you ready? Fulfilled. Remember, to telestai on the cross. It is finished. That's the Greek. It is finished. To telestai. That's fulfilled. Everything is fulfilled. So all the Old Testament stuff that was pointing that was predicting, that was promising, that was giving us patterns, is fulfilled. Dr. Kennedy said there were 333 prophecies that were fulfilled in the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? 333. Okay, you ready? Numbers have meaning to God. 12 has a very important meaning. You know that. 187 times, 12 is used, 22 in Revelation. But here now, 12 is used as a title for a group. Why? Take a look at the 12. Jesus called the disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Why 12? How many tribes were there in the commonwealth of Israel? 12. See the connection? 12 tribes. 12 tribes written on the breastplate of the high priest. So Jesus does what? 
it's not an accident. He doesn't just pull a number out of the sky. 12 is there. 12 is the, the number of completion, if you will, authority and governmental rule. All of that comes together, and now he does what? He takes us from the old to the new, and he says, now here's the new. The new 12 tribes, if you will. The fulfillment of the old 12 in here. The 12 apostles. So that's the 12. Okay, so you see how it ties in? Now up to Jerusalem. What in the world does that mean? It's specific. It has a double meaning. Let's take a look at Luke 9.51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, he's ready. Remember, all of this is, is just a few weeks now from the cross. He's going to be taken up to heaven. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. In Isaiah 50, it says he set his face like flint to Jerusalem. Well, what does it mean up to Jerusalem? There's two meanings. Number one, there's a physical meaning. Up really was up. Why? Jerusalem was up. It was elevated. If you look at two markers on the map, you look at Jericho. Jericho is about 700 feet below sea level. Jericho is down here below sea level. Jerusalem is about 3,300 feet above Jericho. So any way that you come to Jerusalem, anyway, from any direction, you're going which way? Up. Okay, so there, there's a physical meaning to the passage. But that's not all. There's a spiritual meaning to the passage, is there not? Of course there is. Why? <clears throat> what, what does Jerusalem represent? The city of God. So Jesus is going up to the city to be crucified, dead and buried, and on the third day raised. And now seated at the right hand of God the Father, where that new Jerusalem will be coming down one day soon, when he establishes his kingdom, and his kingdoms reign forevermore. So there's not just a... It's physical. You have to go up to Jerusalem. So when you leave Jerusalem, you're always going down, no matter where you go. And when you go to Jerusalem, you're always going up, no matter where you're coming from. But it's spiritual. It's a deeper message. And then that ties us into the final passage here where he says, Son of man. What does son of man mean? If you're steeped into the scriptures, you hear an echo in Daniel, right? But I want to show you there's two meanings to this as well. So look at son of man, Daniel 7, 13. This is a messianic title out of Daniel for Jesus, for the Messiah, for the promised king. And Daniel says, in my vision, there was one like the son of man. See the title, son of man? Coming with the cloud. Who comes on the clouds of heaven? God. That's only reserved for deity. So if you see that, you put it all together, you see what Daniel's looking at. So we see this as a messianic title, the son of man. It was Jesus had a self-designation that he, he would call himself. He called himself the son of man more than anything else. Why? For two reasons. This one, the Messiah, but he's also what? He's the son of man. Now, there was a supernatural conception, right? That he was born of the virgin because of the Holy Spirit, but he still was the son to the watching world and for every other purpose Joseph's son, but not conceived through Joseph. But the point is, is he's fully human. So in his messianic title, he's fully God. And he's fully man. So son of man carries both meanings. And it helps us understand something. Now, theologically, there's a term for it, and it's deep, and it comes out of a council back in 451, the council of Chalcedon. We don't have to, it's not a seminary class, but just very briefly, they had to discuss this thing about his natures. And many said he had one nature. He had a divine nature. 
He didn't have a human nature. That was not possible. Well, in that council, they determined what was called this hypostatic union. That means he is fully God and fully man together. But it is without mixture. It's no aspect of his humanity or his Godhead was mixed or confused or taken away. So no human mind can understand this. But we receive it by faith that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Okay? So that's the Son of Man. This is how we hear in his promise. Now, that takes us to what we read in his prophecy. And I'm just going to show you three things out of the passage. And you can find many, many more on your own. Let's take a look at three. He will back to the passage. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. Pause. What is that? Why is that specific? Because the Jews no longer had authority to, to kill anyone. So he had to be handed over to the Romans, the Gentiles, in order for him to be put to death. So Jesus is saying that I will be handed over to the Gentiles. Now notice the specificity in what he says next. Are you ready? And you know all of these are true. Because you have the whole book now and you know what's happened after the fact. But he's now speaking before the fact. He's speaking of prophecy. He's speaking of what was written centuries before. And what does he say? They'll mock me. They'll insult me. They'll spit on my face. They'll flog me. They'll whip him. And they'll kill me. And on the third day, I'll rise. Okay, three things. Let's look at the betrayal. And you can find many, many more. You can make your own study. I'm just going to give you one of each so we can move through. Psalm 41.9. Betrayal. He's handed over. He's being handed over to the Gentiles. Someone is handing him over. Now, ultimately, God is behind all of this. Yes? Nod your heads. But everybody who did what they ought not to do is responsible for what they did. Okay? Even my close friend. Someone I trusted. One who shared my bread. Remember the night he was betrayed? Remember? It's really acted out beautifully in our Christmas pageant. Remember that? With Mac as Simon Peter, and he plays the role of Jesus. And we have some of our apostles who are here, who are sitting at that table. It's beautifully acted out, where he says, the one that I di- who dips in, in, in the wine with my bread, is, that's the one who betrays me. He was betrayed. He was handed over by a close friend. Remember, Judas betrayed him with a kiss. But there it is in prophecy. Long, 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 long before. Okay? Now, what about crucifixion? What about killing him? Watch this one. And this you have to really pay attention to because you can miss this one. Because remember, you're looking at it from a 21st century lens and the whole book. You have to go back to the first century. You've got to see what they had. Then you've got to go back further to when something was written. So now we're going to go back to the Psalms. The psalmist in 22, 16 to 18 writes these words. Ready? Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Stop. <clears throat> why, why should that arrest your attention? <clears throat> what did they know about piercing of the hands and the feet back then? Nothing. What was, what was the death sentence in Israel? Stoning. Throw somebody off the cliff, you stone them. But it's deeper than that. Nobody was piercing hands and feet back then. 
There was no crucifixion then. That didn't exist. By the time it got to Rome, they perfected it. But that's centuries later. So where is that? That's in the mind of God. Do you see that? You have to see these things. And you go, that's amazing. You know they pierced his hands and his feet. You have the record. You see it acted out in place. And you, you... But the psalmist writes this. Piercing his hands and feet, that's just bizarre. Then all my bones are on display. We know that no bone could be broken. Why? You could not have a blemished lamb. So a bone can't be broken, but they're on display. What, is that, what, what does that imply? What happens when you hang on a cross? All your bones are out of place. They're on display. It's as if the psalmist is standing at the foot of the cross writing this. And he was. It's the word of God. Now, who could make this up? They divide my... Who would even write this? They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So some skeptical bloggers and chat rumors, not scholars, but bloggers who, who try to corner me and want to ask me, okay, pastor, so you show me these prophecies. All they did is they went back, they looked at the, the Hebrew scriptures, they saw what was needed to be done, and then they did it. They just followed along what was written. So they fulfilled the prophecy. Who divided the clothes and cast the lots? The Jews? No. The Romans, they didn't even know about the Hebrew Scriptures. What's the matter with you people? I'm talking to these people saying, where do you come up with this? Only the most learned of Jews knew what was in the Scriptures. But now you're telling me the pagans knew it? And they're following it along so that they can fulfill it? They didn't even know it existed. Who knew? God. God wrote it. To what? To strengthen your faith today. In the year 2019. To know that what you believe is true. Every bit of it. None of it made up. And finally the resurrection. You say where's that in the Old Testament? I'm going to give you one. 1610 in the Psalms again. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. Nor will you let my, your faithful ones see decay. Do you know who quotes this passage? Two giants of the faith. Peter and Paul. Peter in Acts 2. Paul in Acts 13. What is that passage? Some say, well, I was speaking about David. It, it, it was? David's in the, his body's in the grave. Spirit's with the Lord. Body's in the grave. Whose body came out of the grave? Jesus, third day, will not let his body see decay. So here we have the betrayal, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. We read this in his prophecy. Good? Final point. Now we have to understand this in his pattern. This is a little deeper, but it's not hard. It's very easy to understand. What, what do we mean by pattern? You know what patterns are. You, you can use the very common term for pattern. I want to show you what a typological pattern is as it relates to Scripture, but I'm going to give you a very secular definition from Webster. Ready for Webster's definition out of the Webster Dictionary of a typological pattern. You ready? 
a person or thing in the Old Testament believed to foreshadow another in the New Testament. So what is a pattern? You, You heard the phrase, a picture is worth a thousand. Okay. If you come to the Scriptures rightly, and you come to the Old Testament, you read in these pictures that God paints on every page, you read about Jesus. But you have to be looking for it. You have to understand how it's written. Now, don't misunderstand me. The original author wrote to an original audience, and you have to understand what that is first. Right? There's an original intent behind the author to his audience that he writes. But we have to go past that, don't we? Because who's the ultimate author of Scripture? God. And if all of Scripture is pointing to Christ, and Christ is both the circumference and the center of all of history, then all of Scripture has to ultimately point to Jesus. Yes? Now we're going to see how it does that. And you're going to see how Jesus lays it all out for us. Okay? So you can see I'm not making any of this up. What's some of the types that we can look at and know for sure? And we don't have to get... There's a lot of people who can go really deep on this. I want to make it real simple. And a couple things that make real simple sense. What about the Passover lamb? What about all of those sacrifices? Every morning and every evening. We have about 1,500 years, right, of Old Testament history. Of, of Israel's history in the Old Testament. So we have 1,500 years of Israel's history. So you have sacrifice every morning, every 1,500 years. What is all that about? Then you, you have this Passover lamb. What is, what is all of that? It has to point to something. So we read in the New Testament. What do we read? 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So every sacrifice in the Old Testament was a pattern for the ultimate sacrifice in the New which was to come and be fulfilled in Jesus. What does John the Baptist say when he sees Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God. Who would say that? Doesn't it just seem odd? What do you mean the Lamb of God? Well, John knew. John knew. He knew what the Old Testament sacrifices were pointing to. The perfect unblemished lambs that they would use, right, without defect. But they never atoned for sin. These were shadows that pointed ultimately one day to the substance, the true Lamb of God, who would come and truly take away the sins. Okay? So this is the provision of God. Now let's take a look at the presence of God in the tabernacle. There's a pattern. Not just the pattern of creating the tabernacle and all of that stuff that went into building into the temple. The tabernacle and the temple were a a pattern of themselves. They were the presence of God. So where do we see this in the New Testament? John 1. Right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And then John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh. And don't say dwelt among us. Say tabernacled. Everybody say it. Tabernacled. Hey, you just learned a Greek word for dwelt among. There it is. He tabernacled. What does that mean? What was the tabernacle? It was the picture of the presence of God. What is Jesus? The presence of God is not the picture. He's the fulfillment. See it? So the pattern pointed us to the person in Jesus. Now we're going to go deeper. 
And this will be good. I heard from people after both services last night and this morning. You ready for this? Third day. Because this question comes up all the time. We're, 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 I can't find third day. I, I, I Google all the time. I go online. I look in my concordance. I can't find third day in the, New, in the Old Testament. Where is that? It's everywhere. Just got to know how to look for it. So Jesus helps us right from the beginning. He's, this, is, this comes under, we saw, we saw the promise and we saw the provision, right? This is the precision. The precision of God in the third day. He, God does amazing things all throughout the scriptures. But he does some really remarkable things. And I'm only going to give you a couple on the third day. Really, really remarkable things. Okay? Ready for this? Jesus is going to bring us into it first. Third day. Matthew 12, 40. For as Jonah, who's speaking? Jesus for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the son, there's his favorite self-designation, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then let's, go, well, let's, let's just go to Jonah real quick. Jonah, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. So Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights, and Jesus said three days and three nights. But what you have to be careful of is you have to get into the Old Testament context, the ancient world context, and how did they reckon time? So you, you, if you have to be careful because if you think that the time is reckoned, okay, it has to be three full days and three full nights, then you misunderstand how they reckon time. You're going to see in a moment in a passage, today, tomorrow, and the third day, but all you needed in order to fulfill that prophecy was a portion of three days, any portion of three days. So you don't have to back out of Good Friday and get him crucified on Thursday. You don't need to do that. So if he's crucified on Friday and he's buried on Friday before sundown, then he's, he's in the grave before their Sabbath. So that's Friday. Okay, that's today. Saturday is tomorrow. Sunday is the third. Got it? That's all. It's real simple. So that's how they reckon time in the ancient world, and that's all we're looking for is portions of those three days, and you're going to see it in a passage in just a moment. Today, tomorrow, and the third day. Okay? Three days. A couple more for you. In raising Israel, in Hosea 6.2. Ready for this? After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us. Look at what God's doing on the third day. That we may live in his presence. Third day. How about the queen? Remember the Jewish queen, Esther? She has to intercede on behalf of her people lest they be annihilated and wiped out. And when does she do it? On the third day. Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. What was the penalty for entering the king's palace uninvited? Death. But she went and intervened. Why? God was at work. On what day? Say it. Third day. 2 Kings 25, God now to Isaiah to Hezekiah, right? The Lord said, I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. I'm only giving you a couple. You can spend a lifetime working on this. Exodus 19, 10 and 11. Remember where God descends on Mount Sinai? He's speaking to Moses. Now notice the timing. Now you're going to see the timing. What I've been telling you about today, tomorrow, and third, you're going to see it right here. So you're going to see how time is reckoned. So don't be caught up in three days and three nights. Don't let, that, don't let that catch you up. Don't let a blogger or a chat rumor mess with you. Don't do it. The Lord said, go to the people and consecrate them. When? Today. 
tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Man. For on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. Look what God is doing on what day? Say it. Third day. Over and over and over again. And then perhaps, at least my favorite of all. No, I have one more at the end, but this is a good one. Ready? I'll save one more. Genesis 22, 1 to 4. Ready for this? And if you've never been exposed to this, you, you, this is going to really rock you. It's good stuff. You're going to go, man, this, this really does strengthen my faith. That's what it's supposed to do. It's what I'm here for. God tested Abraham. Remember he had the child of promise? He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son. You got to hear an echo. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain. I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Now, you've got to stay with me. Because you say, ah, oh, where's, the, where's, the, where's the death and the resurrection? You have to get into the passage and what's being said. Okay? God speaks to Abraham and says, I want you to sacrifice your child. He says, your only son. So there's an echo. Because we know there's a great passage that tells us about an only son in the New Testament, right? God had an only son, did he not? My beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So God says, sacrifice your son. So to Abraham, while he is walking to the designated place in the mind of Abraham, Isaac is figuratively what? Dead. Three days walk, and on the third day, there's a ram caught in the thicket. Isaac says, Papa, I see the wood. Where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? And Abraham says, it's you and puts him on the altar and raises the knife to plunge it into his heart and God says stop so in the heart of Abraham Isaac was dead but was given back to him on the third day when he took the ram from the thicket and sacrificed him in the place and what does Abraham call that place Jehovah Jireh the Lord provides how do we know this is How do you know that I'm not making this up? The writer of Hebrews, look what the writer of Hebrews says. You ready? By faith, remember, remember, remember the Hall of Faith? You, you know the Hall of Fame? Baseball Hall of Fame, Football Hall of Fame, all these Hall of Fames we have. There's a Hall of Faith in the Scripture. It's chapter 11 of Hebrews. In the Hall of Faith, notice what it says. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, tested him, Offered Isaac as a sacrifice, he who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. How? There were no resurrections then. But he believed God. He said, if God has me sacrifice my son, he's going to give him back to me. Why? He's the child of promise. I believe God. I take him at his word. 
And if he says do this, it's for my good. And ultimately it's for the accomplishment of God's perfect plan. But the writer says he did receive Isaac back from the dead. When? Third day. Oh, we could go on and on and on, but you probably have somewhere to go sometime today. I don't. I, so we could just... Uh, I, and my wife is stuck, so she doesn't either. So I can speak on her behalf. And Brock in the tank, we're, we're here. We're here. We're here. All right, how do we close this? What's, pause for a second. What's, what's the whole point? You're supposed to be strengthened in your faith when you read this stuff. It's not a fairy tale. It's not an Aesop's fables. You have the only, you have the only religious worldview that is rooted in what? Historical events. Stuff that actually really took place. Stuff that's documented that has taken place. It's real stuff. You have the only worldview that has that. And then you start looking at it closely and you put these puzzle pieces together and you go, whatever he looked like, and we don't know what he really looked like. We can only kind of draw pictures. Of it, but he's not a blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy, I don't think. I don't think, I don't know. But it shows the picture of, of whom? Jesus. Everywhere. Why? Because it's all about him. Every aspect of Scripture is about him. So now I want to give you a great quote. So you should be strengthened. It's a great apologetic. You should be strengthened by the Scriptures. My job to unpack it, to strengthen you in your faith. But I'm going to give you a great quote from a mind that is so far superior. From I wish I could write this way, but I can't. But I want you to listen to these words. I'll unpack a little bit. Sometimes you can get a little confusing as you read through a C.S. Lewis quote. Sometimes some things are very simple. This one here, I just want to make sure. What he's going to do is he's going to say... You have, a, you have a religious worldview. You have a reason why you believe Christianity is true. And, and you should be able to exp- explain that. Well, the other side has an explanation of why it's not true. And what he basically says is, their explanation is far more whacked out than yours is. That's my interpretation anyway. He didn't write, really write that way. He was a scholar from, from Oxford. But in my mind, it's, he, he says, you might think ours is whacked, but yours is really whacked. I mean, Yours doesn't make any sense at all. So keep that in mind as we go through this quote. This is from Lewis. And he's talking about those who question our faith. And remember, this, this, this was the leading atheist. Atheist. No God. And set out to disprove Christianity. And in his own words, the hound of heaven sought him, caught him, and bought him by the blood of the Lamb. And he became arguably the greatest apologist, I think, that, that certainly in the 20th century, if not beyond that. If you haven't read his stuff, just get anything from C.S. Just read it. Mere Christianity will just rock your world. But listen to these words, okay? The historical difficulty of explaining the life, sayings, and influence of Jesus, any explanation that is not harder then the Christian explanation is very great. You have an explanation for what you believe. Theirs is more difficult to believe. Is what he's saying. The discrepancy between the depth and sanity and shrewdness of his moral teaching 
and the rampant megalomania which must lie behind his theological teaching unless he is indeed God has never been satisfactorily explained. No one has ever been able to give a a scholarly cogent explanation for this guy, Jesus. No one. And remember his conclusion. He's either one of three things. He's a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. He's not a good man. He's not a good teacher. He's not a great prophet. He's none of that if he isn't God. Then he says, hence, the non-Christian hypotheses succeed one another with the restless fertility of bewilderment. I wish I could write like that, but I can't. And if I tried to take one of his quotes and tell you I did it, you'd know I didn't. You'd go, you can't fool us. You're not that bright. Is that amazing? That's why I read all the giants. Hence, the non-Christian hypotheses, and they're everywhere. They succeed one another. They're ahead of the next one. With restless fertility of bewilderment. They don't make sense. And remember, if you're in a discussion with somebody who's really sincere, here's, here's what I do, and I do it all the time. And I, I used to do it in a, in a bad way early on, right? I was very aggressive, and I believe the Bible. I banged the Bible over people's heads. I don't do that anymore. Don't do that. If that's, if, that's, if that's your kind of evangelism, come and tell me, and I'll get you a sticker from Calvary or First Baptist. You can put it on your car. So when you drive away, people will think you came from, well, I want them to think you came from somewhere else. But, but I, no, 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 because I used to be that guy. And then people would, I, I started seeing people walking away from me when they'd see me coming. If I could go back now and tell all these people how sorry I am, I would do it. Because it was so wrong. I did not understand that portion of the apologetic statement to be ready to give a defense, to give a reason for the hope that you have in you, but then it, continues with gentleness and respect. I didn't understand that. I do now. So if you're speaking to somebody who's sincere, I ask this question all the time. You don't believe what I believe. That's fine. I'll, I'll take that. You told me what you believe. Why do you believe that? You have to be able to at least defend your position somehow. How, how, I'll, I'll say it kind How do you come to that conclusion? Well, I just know Christianity's not true. Okay. How do you come to that conclusion? You ever read the Bible? No, I never read the Bible. I never read this, never read that. So you have an opportunity to be able to speak to people about a faith that really, really makes sense. Whether you believe it or not, it makes intellectual sense when you walk through it. And then you have all of the historical events that it's rooted in. So, after Lewis, one final passage. You ready for this? Here's the question, and we're done. I believe the Scriptures are the Word of God from beginning to end, all of it. I believe it, all inspired Word, and I believe what it says. And I believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And I believe He did it in seven literal days. I believe that. People ask me, what do you believe? Okay, so I believe that. And you want to know why I believe that? What was created on the third day? And I promise you this is no accident. 
Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, plants bearing seed and trees bearing fruit. And there was evening and there was morning. The When was life created? Third day. Do you think that was set up in anticipation of the true third day? When new life would be created in Christ? Of course it was. Do you think that just simply fell that way? God was setting it up from the beginning, from before the foundation of the world. Life is created on day three, and new life is created on the third day. Is that your truth? With outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, guess who says come? Christ. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's a third-day resurrection waiting for you right now in your own life, in your own heart, if you will, by grace through faith, trust in Christ alone, whether here or by way of the Internet. Trust in Christ alone. Put your doing down and trust in Christ alone, and that third-day resurrection is yours today. If you've never prayed, pray with me now, and all believers pray with me in your hearts. Father, we come to you. And if there's anyone here, in this sanctuary or by way of the internet who has never, ever experienced the third day resurrection. Give the gift of repentance and faith. Raise them from death to life. And may they cry out the most simple of all prayers right from the scriptures. God be merciful to me, the sinner. If you prayed those simple words... By grace, through faith, trusting in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And you can be assured that salvation is yours this day. That you have experienced a third day resurrection. For on the third day, Christ walked out of the grave and in to your heart. And Father, for the rest, some who've walked for decades, help us to keep walking by faith and not by sight, trusting in you even when we cannot trace you, thanking you every step of the way. For we know that all things, all things work together for the good, for those who are the called, those who love God. And this we thank you for in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand and join us in worship? Heaven's mercy seat.